Please, congregation, turn your Bibles this afternoon in the first place to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, the passage didn't make it in the bulletin, but it was my mistake. Acts chapter 2, we'll read, begin reading at verse 36. Look at this passage together as well as a passage from 1 Peter chapter 2. Before turning to Article 28 of the Belgian Confession, recall from last time that we've come to a new section of the Belgian Confession, namely the section of the doctrine of the church and how the church is the household of God. And now we'll see this afternoon that the church is that body of believers who have been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. But first, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 36, this is the Apostle Peter's Pentecost sermon. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers and Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Turn also to the Apostle Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, read verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter 2, this too is God's holy word. The Apostle says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please turn also to Article 28 of our Confession, Article 28, page 184, in the back of the Forms and Prayers books, or 865, in the back of the Psalter Hymnal, Article 28 of our Confession. Article 28, we believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved, and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself, regardless of his status or condition. But all people are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. And to preserve this unity more effectively, it is the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves from those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it, even if civil authorities and royal decrees forbid and death and physical punishment result. And so all who withdraw from the church or do not join it act contrary to God's ordinance. This the Church of Christ does confess and believe throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this first epistle, the Apostle Peter is writing to a people who find themselves grieved by all kinds of various trials. In fact, if you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, you'll discover that this is somewhat the, the impetus for Peter's writing this letter in the first place. In verse 1, he draws on the imagery of the Old Testament, calling his readers elect exiles. For on the one hand, he recognizes that they are God's elect. They are those who have been called by God. As we read in verse 9 of chapter 2, they are those who have been called by God, called out of darkness and, and into God's marvelous light. But on the other hand, they're also exiles. In virtue of their being called out of the kingdom of darkness and in virtue of their having been brought into the kingdom of God, this world no longer feels like their home. And the reason for that is because it no longer is. For the believer's true home, his true citizenship is in heaven. The believer's name is is written down in, in heaven's book of life and his membership in the local church is a reflection of that heavenly reality. The world no longer feels like the believer's home because it no longer is. For when the believer is granted entrance into the household of God, into the kingdom of God, the world becomes to him a place of animosity and hostility. As we heard last time, the world 
hurls all sorts of of threats and and insults against God's household, and the world seeks to destroy that household. It's a place of animosity and hostility. As we heard last time from Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city, a river whose streams make glad the, the household of God. For God himself is in the midst of her, and so she shall not be moved. For Christ promised that even if the gates of hell, that not even the gates of hell could prevail against the church. And Peter reassures his readers of the same thing in his first letter. He goes so far as to say in verse 6 of chapter 1, In this you rejoice, for although you are currently grieved by all kinds of various trials, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, will be found to, to result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 2, he says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Yes, God's people are exiles in the world and the world no longer feels like their home but in his grace and mercy his elect exiles are not called to live life on their own for when he calls them out of the world he calls them into his church when God calls us unto himself he unites us together and he calls us to live in light of that unity and as we see in verses 9 and 10 God doesn't just save individual persons but God saves a people And here in Article 28 of our Confession, we learn that we as believers are not to live as lone rangers. But rather, God calls us to live as living members. Living members of Christ's body, which is made manifest in the local congregation. And so we confess that since this holy congregation is a gathering of those who are saved, and there is no salvation apart from it, no one ought to withdraw from it, content to be by himself regardless of status or condition. But all people everywhere are obliged to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Christ, by serving to build up one another according to the gifts that God has given them as members of each other in one body. The church of Christ is the spiritual household of God. The apostle describes all those who have come to Christ as being like these living stones that are being built together, not existing all on their own, but being built together into this spiritual house, this holy priesthood that offers up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, says the apostle, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. This is the word of assurance that belongs to the church of Jesus. That even as we as members of the church confess Christ's name, and as we're ridiculed for confessing his name, we will never be put to shame. This is the word of assurance that belongs to you this afternoon. That if you have come to embrace this living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you have come to build your life upon this living stone, then you will never be put to shame. For the honor, says Peter, is for you who believe. But if you have not embraced him, 
And if you will not embrace him, then this living stone will become to you a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Rejecting Christ, you see, does not simply make him go away. That's what Peter is getting at. For Christ, says one author, is laid across the path of human history on its course into the future. And in the encounter with him, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. But the point is that no one can simply sidestep this living stone and go about his daily routine as though nothing has happened. All those who refuse to confess Christ, who refuse to embrace this living stone, will suffer the shameful judgment by the God of the universe, who himself is the ultimate arbitrator of judgment and shame. But not the church, for the holy, this holy assembly and congregation is the gathering of those who are saved by the precious blood of Jesus, who, as Hebrews 12 says, endured the cross and despised the shame. And who is even now seated in heaven at God's right hand. And so if the church is indeed as we say it is. If the church is the gathering of those who are saved. And if there is no salvation apart from it. Then it makes perfect sense doesn't it. That we should all join and unite ourselves to it. And that's what we see taking place already in the earliest days of, of the New Testament church isn't it. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost has finally arrived. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on on all flesh. And the Apostle Peter is is preaching the gospel, the the good news of Jesus Christ. And his hearers have been cut to the heart. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises to you and to your children and so on. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so as Jews and Gentiles alike began to come in faith to this living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, they began to unite themselves to the church of Christ. Acts 2.41 tells us that those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And notice that word, the word added. Because the word added begs the question, doesn't it? Added to what? They were added to the church. They were added to the assembly of those who were saved. They were added to that holy congregation. And they began to live in light of that reality, didn't they? We read in verse 42 that they began to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. And all who believed, verse 44, were together. And they had all things in common. Verse 46, day by day they were attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having honor with all people. And the Lord added to their number that day, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice how in both verses 41 and verse 47, salvation is put in terms of of being added to the number. They were added to the number. That's not an insignificant point to make. Because, as I said before, when God saves us, he doesn't just save us as individual persons to be lone rangers, but he saves a people. He adds us to the number. He adds us to the assembly. 
And so what our confession is highlighting here is that to identify with Christ is necessarily to identify also with his people, to be joined to his people. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. When God saves individuals, he makes them members of a people, a people that transcends ethnicities and social standings. He brings them into a people who have been made one in Christ and co-heirs of the promise given to Abraham. I will be your God and you will be my people. It isn't this that we just saw in the waters of baptism. In the waters of baptism, God said to Andrew, you are no longer your own, but you belong to me and you belong to my people. And then we affirm that together in the vow that we made with that vow. We affirm that, that Andrew is, is one of us. He's one of us. He belongs to a people. As we confess in Article 34 of the Belgian Confession, in the sacrament of baptism, we are received into God's church and we're set apart from all other people and alien religions. Nor that we might be dedicated entirely to him, bearing his mark and sign. Or as we confess in Lord's Day 27, baptism as a sign of the covenant incorporates our children into the Christian church and distinguishes them from the children of unbelievers. And so if our clerk is diligent, and he often is, Andrew's name will be added to the church directory today or tomorrow. He's one of us. He has a people. And notice what the Apostle Paul says about this people. Listen to how the Apostle identifies this people. Having spoken to the church's salvation in verses 4 through 8, he now speaks to the church's specification in verses 9 and 10. He tells us, he specifies who we are. And he says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, says Peter, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Congregation, when you think about yourselves, what sorts of things first begin to enter your minds? I think for many of us, when we begin to think about ourselves in terms of, of who we are, in terms of our identity, we first begin to think about ourselves in terms of, of what we do. We might say, well, I'm, I'm a businessman, or, or I'm a teacher, or I'm a, a landscaper, or, or I'm a preacher. And if we don't first identify ourselves by what we do, by our respective callings, then perhaps we identify ourselves by our earthly relationships. We might say, well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. While these things may be good and true, such things should not be our starting point. But our starting point should be to see ourselves the way God sees us. Our identity is to be defined first and foremost by him. And what he says is really quite amazing, isn't it? Because he says that we are a chosen race. And he identifies us as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people of his own possession. 
in order that we might proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This congregation is where we need to find our identity this afternoon. We recognize once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. And we've received his grace and mercy in abundance. God has called you out of the darkness. Out of the darkness of the world, the darkness of sin and unbelief, the darkness of independent individualism. And he's called you into his marvelous light, adding your name to the book of life and the flock of Christ. And so when we address you as preachers, as people of God or congregation in Christ, we need to recognize that's not just preacher talk, is it? That's, that's who we are. We are God's people, his special people of his own possession, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. That's who we really are. And knowing whose you are now determines who you are. That's what Peter is pressing upon us here. Knowing whose you are is what determines who you are. And who you are ought to have a profound impact on the way you are. Your identity as the people of God must be made evident in your life. And that's the last thing we want to consider this afternoon. Having been called out of darkness, we're to live as those who are a people of the light. And that's what the apostle presses home here in verses 11 and 12 when he says, Behold, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In short, the church is to live separate from the world. Separate, not in the sense that we're to keep our unbelieving friends and neighbors at an, at an arm's length, but separate in the sense that we're to live in an entirely different way. For our allegiance no longer belongs to the world, but to Christ and to his people. And this is why we also confess here in Article 28 that to preserve this unity more effectively, it's the duty of all believers, according to God's word, to separate themselves those who do not belong to the church in order to join this assembly wherever God has established it. And they should do so even when the rulers and edicts forbid it and when death and physical punishment might follow it. For all who withdraw from the church or do not join it act contrary to God's ordinance. The elect exiles to whom the Apostle Peter is writing, you see, are to be mindful that they live before a watching world. And they're to recognize that their distinct manner of life, they're abstaining from the passions of the flesh, they're keeping their conduct honorable, is in large part their most powerful witness to this watching world. Peter is urging his readers to pursue Christ instead, to pursue the unity of Christ's body rather than all the pursuits and pleasures of the world. We need to take his exhortation to heart, abstain Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Keep, keep your distance from the ways of the world. Peter's saying, remember the antithesis, that principle of, of separation that God has placed between the church and the world. 
and never forget it. That's what the Apostle Peter is, is pressing upon us here. To live in light of our baptism that God has marked us and he has distinguished us from the world around us. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. The passions of the flesh seem so right in the heat of the moment often, don't they? Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. The passions of the flesh offer us everything. Eat of the tree and you'll be just like God. But the passions of the flesh deliver on nothing. And they wage war against our souls. And so the apostle is warning us that we need to be careful lest we fall into the old sinful patterns of the world. This is why the apostle Paul writes the way he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, do not be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, says God, go out from their midst and be separate from them, declares the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. You see, the problem in Corinth is that there were members of the church who had not broken entirely with their former heathen heathen religion and worship. For doing so, of course, would have had real consequences. It's often not an easy thing to, to draw one's line in the sand and, and to say, I'll, I'll have no part in this. But for Christ's sake, the Apostle Paul urged them to, to make that break with their old ways complete. And that's the calling that's set before us this afternoon. The Word of God calls us to Break ties with the ungodly practices and patterns of the world, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. And to join ourselves to the church of Christ, no matter the cost. Are we willing to do that this afternoon? Are we willing to break ties with the world? Are we willing to draw the line in the sand and to stand firmly on the side of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to confess in the university or the workplace or anywhere else that we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we belong to a people, the people of Christ? And the question, of course, is how can we not? How can we not identify and publicly align ourselves with him when he has identified himself with us? Of course, we live in a world that mocks and ridicules the church of Christ. We live in a world that would have us to feel so ashamed for believing what we believe. But Jesus says, whoever confesses my name before men, his name will I confess before my Father in heaven. Jesus says by his word and spirit, the honor is for you who believe. For whoever believes in Christ will never be put to shame. That's our confidence as we find ourselves grieved by all sorts of trials and as we face that that hostility of the world. 
And that will be our, con- that our confidence always. That's the confidence of our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted intensely for their faith in Christ and who are not permitted to, to ever come together under any circumstances. And so as the hostility of the world increases and heightens, we need to take those encouraging words from Hebrews chapter 10 to heart. Let us hold fast our confession at, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For you know that you yourselves have a better possession, an abiding possession. Therefore do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For in just a little while, says the author of Hebrews, the coming one will come, and he will not delay. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise again that you have called us out of darkness that you have called us into your own marvelous light. We thank you that you have identified us as a special people, a people of your own possession. You have made us to be a chosen race and a holy nation and a royal priesthood that once we were not a people, but now we know that we are your people. Although once we had not received mercy, we have now received grace and mercy in abundance. We thank you, Lord, that you call us out of the world, not to be lone rangers, not to be all on our own, but that you call us into a body. You bring us into a local congregation that we might use our gifts readily and cheerfully for the service of the other members and benefit in the same by the gifts of those around us. Father, we pray that you would help us to take seriously this confession that we have made concerning the obligations of being living members of the church. Keep us, Lord, from the stain of the world. Help us to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against our souls. And grant us grace to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may indeed see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation. These things we ask, Lord, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.